This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. Your support helps us to produce more amazing podcasts, stage more live debates each year, and it will bring you even closer to the world's most brilliant minds. And if you're an Apple podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, part two of our discussion with Yuval Noah Harari. He's the historian who's writing across best-selling titles such as Sapiens and its follow-up Homo Deus, has nudged the dial on how we see ourselves as a species, bringing that epic story to an even bigger audience. Yuval Noah Harari is back with a new book, Unstoppable Us, Volume 1. It's something a bit different from the author, an illustrated book for children, inviting them to look at the early history of humankind. We caught up with Yuval Noah Harari at the Penguin offices when he made a recent visit to London. If you didn't catch the first installment of our deep dive with Yuval, now is a good time to check back and get up to speed on that recent episode in the archive. Now let's dive back into part two. This is Yuval Noah Harari in conversation with our host, the academic and broadcaster, Professor Shahida Bari. I think the story that you tell in all of your books, certainly Sapiens and, in, and here, is the story of the evolutionary superiority of human beings. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you have a chapter here, I think with the title, Why Ants Have Queens But No Lawyers. Yeah. Humans have lawyers, but ants don't get to have lawyers. And it struck me that that message or that story of, the, of human superiority, we're better than the ants or we're cleverer than the ants, is different to the ecological messaging that we're having at the moment about the extinction of species, which often downplays our importance. Mm. You know, the, I wonder what you think about this backlash about the Anthropocene, that 
humans, you know, for all our ecological superiority, that this is a moment where actually we want to downplay our superiority. I don't think that humans are necessarily smarter than other animals. They are certainly not nicer than other animals. And again, when you place the, the emphasis on, 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 on fictional stories, it's actually we are more gullible than other animals. We, believe, we know a lot more, more, more true facts than other animals, but we also believe far more nonsense than any animal on earth. There are many things that we believe that no chimpanzee and no dog <laughs> will ever consider believing because they are just too nonsensical, but we believe them. And that's the source of our power because fiction is the basis for, 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 for cooperation. And I think especially at this point in history, when we are destabilizing the entire ecological system, and we are pushing so many other species to extinction, we should take responsibility. It's, this is not a time to downplay our power and our agency, because this implies that, hey, whatever is happening in the world, it's not our fault and we can't do anything about it. No, much of what is happening in the world in ecological terms is definitely our fault. It's the fault of the particular stories that we tell ourselves. Uh, and and, and we, we can still change it. So, you know, it's, it's, it starts with religious stories that, again, you learn as a kid in the book of Genesis that God created humans as superior to all the other animals and gave humans actually the command to rule and exploit all, all the echoes. I mean, as if, as if the entire, everything was just created for us. Yeah. And you have, I don't know, this Noah, the, the, the story of Noah's flood which again implies that, you know, the entire ecosystem is destroyed because of human sin. Which, you know, if you're a giraffe, you ask yourself, why? Well, I didn't do anything wrong. Why am I kind of drowning? Because these apes did something that, why? But the message kids get is from, from these kind of biblical stories is that it's all about us. And, and this links directly to the ecological catastrophe that we are facing because, I mean, what led to it is this impression that the entire ecosystem is just there for us. It's just there for us to exploit and, 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 and whatever. Uh, so we need to change these kinds of stories. And similarly, if you think about modern economic stories, because, you know, I mean, the biggest stories, the best storytellers today in the world are not the people who win the Nobel Prize in literature. It's the people who win the Nobel Prize in economics. Right. They are the greatest storytellers in the world. The one story, like everybody believes, is the story of money, which uh, money is just, uh, it's, it's just a fiction in our imagination. It's not something that, you know, it's not like a banana or a coconut you can eat or drink or whatever. It's just a story we tell ourselves. We are the only animal aware of its existence. You know, chimpanzees know that there are bananas in the world. They don't know that there is money because money exists only in the imagination of, of homo sapiens. And understanding what money is, is so crucial for changing the type of economic system we have, which is ultimately responsible for the type of ecological system uh, 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 that we have. And again, I think that kids are in a kind of uh, uh, privileged position to talk with them about what money is because they still question it. As adults, we just use it all the time. We don't think about it. What is this thing that, uh, um, and you know, ultimately you can think about it, uh, you know, it's like points in a computer game that uh, how do you control people in a computer game? You give them points. You do this, you get points. You do this, you, you lose points. And um, money is just the points we invented for the game of life. 
You do this, you get points. You, but what are these points? Who this, I mean, this is something that, again, I think it's crucial to ask. And it's in a way easier to talk about with, with kids because it's still a bit unfamiliar to them. How does it work, this, yeah. this strange thing with, with, with the money? I want to ask you more about money in okay. the game of life in a moment. But just for, for, for a moment, I want to, to press on this idea of the, the stories that mm. we tell. Because it's in Homo Deus, which you published in 2016, that you, you start to question this, the, the continuing superiority of human beings in yeah. a world of dataism. You call it dataism. Yeah. Um, uh, a future in which algorithms will assume authority over all the facets of our it's lives. You think, yeah. well, I'm, I want to ask you about this because children unlike you and I are digital natives yeah. they are born into dataism they you and I probably have photographs of ourselves taken with you know analog cameras <laughs> mechanical cameras but children are digital from birth and I wonder whether they can have any resistance to that algorithmization of the world absolutely because you know the algorithms they're not necessarily bad there are many many good things they can also do for us uh, from healthcare to education. I'm not against algorithms or technology, but the key thing about them, they are alien. It's really a type of alien intelligence. It's something, you know, people often uh, I, I know, encounter these things. You, you apply for a bank, for a loan, and the bank says, no, we don't give you a loan. And you ask why? And the bank says, we don't know. The algorithm said, no, the algorithm said, you're not credit worthy. This is what we encounter it already today. It's not a future scenario. And the key thing is if, if you try to understand why the algorithm said no, you very quickly encounter an alien type of intelligence. Because, you know, in Europe, you have the GDPR, which says you are entitled to an explanation. What people often miss is that the real problem is you can't understand. I mean, it's not like... A, a, a human banker refusing to give you a loan because of your race or your gender. People have this idea that there is bias in the system, like the bank doesn't give me a loan because of my gender or whatever. And I, I ask the bank, why didn't you give me a loan? And they will tell me because of your gender or disability or whatever, and then I can sue the bank or take political action against. It doesn't work like this. Humans usually make conscious decisions on the basis of just one or two or three data points. We can't hold many different data points in our mind at the same time and weigh them all against each other. We usually are decisions in politics, in economics, they are decided by a few data points. Algorithms make decisions by aggregating thousands and thousands of data points. Like you ask, why did the algorithm of the bank refuse to give me a loan? And the bank will send you thousands and thousands of, of pages with a lot of small reasons, each of them with a very small weight. And this is something that we just can't digest as, as human beings. And this is going to become more and more common, that the decisions about our lives are taken in a way that our minds 
just can't really absorb. But that question of money is a fiction mm -hmm. is not just an innocent fiction, it strikes mm. me. And your vision of, you know, the, the, the kind of dystopia you imagine of a data-determined future strikes me as also not simply an accident of the way that human societies have developed, a, a random fiction. Someone like the social scientist Sushana Zuboff would say, mm. this is surveillance capitalism. Yeah. This is not simply the random and way in which a society is developed mm. and the fictions it has. This is actually an insidious kind of fiction. And I wonder mm. what you say to this idea that it is not just a random fiction Absolutely. or human fiction. This is capitalism, not evolution, mm -hmm. that is causing our data-determined future. No, absolutely. I mean, stories are, are almost never neutral. And again, one thing to emphasize is agency. It's not a prophecy. It's not deterministic. We can still stop it by taking the right political actions. For instance, you know, one very key message is that whenever you increase surveillance of individuals, you must simultaneously increase surveillance of the government and the big corporations. If surveillance goes only one way, they know more about me, but I don't know more about them. This is the high road to totalitarianism. But it doesn't have to be like that. We can simultaneously use the same technology to monitor the actions, you know, you can, you can uh, monitor government corruption much more easily using the same technology. You can uh, monitor, I want to know whether the big corporations are paying their taxes or not. And use the technology to find out more about that. And if you have this kind of balance, it's not just top down, it's not just they know more about us, but simultaneously we know more about them, then you have a more balanced system and this preserves uh, a certain measure of, of freedom and accountability in the democratic system. So I'm not against, let, let's just get rid of all the technology, it's impossible. It's, no, we can do it in a bit. We have agency. We can demand these kinds of, 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 of things. Similarly, if you think about data, the key thing is never allow all the data to be concentrated in only one place. Again, this is the high road to totalitarianism. So it doesn't have to be like that. You can, through regulation, uh, make sure that the data is never concentrated just in one place. So we, we can still take action about it, but for that, we need to understand what is happening. We need to be aware of, uh, uh, of the danger. We need to understand the technology. You know, one thing I also hear a lot of people suddenly becoming concerned about these conspiracy theories that... Uh, I, I don't know, people are being implanted with chips in their brains. And this I found very troubling because this actually hides the real danger. The technology is nowhere near that. You don't need to worry about chips being implanted in brains, but because the technology is simply not there. The real danger is not the chips in the brains, it's your smartphones. I mean, part of the reason that people are attracted to the kind of conspiracy theory about chips in the brain is because it, in a strange way, it makes them feel safe. Because I haven't been implanted yet with chips in my brain, so I'm safe. And you don't understand, it's not the chips that endanger your privacy. It's your smartphone. Right. So you are in danger, even if you have no implant. You know, just a simple example, if I want to know your political views, or I want to know your sexual orientation, if I plant a chip in your brain, we are nowhere near uh, 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 understanding the human brain well enough to get any useful information from that. 
But if I want to know your political affiliation or sexual orientation, and I have access to your smartphone, <laughs> I know you better than you know yourself. What, where do you, uh, which websites you visit? How much time you spend on each story? These, and, and, and this is already available. Does that mean your relationship with your smartphone is, or is there a smartphone in your baggage, in your pocket? And usually not. I mean, I have a kind of emergency smartphone, so it's usually closed and locked in a drawer. But if I, I don't know, I, 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 I fly somewhere and I need to meet somebody in the airport, so I'll take it in, in, in case I, I, I need, but, I need but communication. But because of the reasons you've outlined, you're wary of the, the way in which your um, data might be... Partly it's that. Partly it's uh, I'm just uh, 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 protecting my time and my mind. You know, the smartest people in the world have been working for, 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 for decades now on how to hack your mind and grab your attention. And the access is through your smartphone. And I don't think I'm smart enough to resist them. I think if I, if I give them this kind of access, they'll be able to hook me. And because I'm, again, this goes back to the question of free will. That if you believe that you have gotten this kind of miraculous free will, it implies I can always resist. Right. I can just say no. And I don't think so. I, I, I'm aware of my weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And I think it's very, it would be very hard for me to, to, to say no to some things. So the way I say no is just don't have a smartphone on me all the time. Yes. I'm, I'm trying to draw out from you, Yuval, uh, the, I'm trying to draw out what, you, what a human being might do, as in... Does a person like you stop using smartphone uh, smartphones and um, sh because human beings are being somehow controlled by these giant tech organizations, do human beings start to regulate banks, for instance, as you were talking mm. about earlier? Are, are these political positions, are these actions that you are advocating for? And I ask that because your writing is often your big history where you might abstain from those political positions. But I wonder if you're actually advocating for us to take action on those fronts. Uh, um, most of the time I focus on the stories that we believe and that we tell each other, but the stories eventually, they are, have to be translated into concrete political action into regulations, especially when we think about the big things, individual action is, is, is usually not, not strong enough to, to, to make a difference. To really make a difference in the world, you need to cooperate with other people. And this is what politics is all about. So often when people ask me, what should we do? The first thing is uh, cooperate with other people. Join an organization. If there is no organization, start an organization. 50 people working together in an organization can have a much, much bigger impact on the world than 500 isolated activists, each doing, trying to do their own thing. So regulation is very important. Uh, also, you know, um, I'm not against uh, things like technology. They can bring enormous benefits to humanity as a whole, also to individuals. You know, I, like, I, I met my husband online in one of the first dating uh, uh, sites for, for LGBT people in Israel in the early 2000s, and this was wonderful. Because, you know, previously, a uh, big question was, you know, I, I grew up in this small provincial Israeli town, quite homophobic, and the big question is, how, how, how do you meet other guys? And the internet came along, and this was wonderful because this was a way for people in, you know, there are two types of minorities in the world. There are minorities that, even though they are a minority in the general population, they are concentrated in one place. 
So if you're a Jew, I don't know, in Britain, uh, you're likely to be raised in a Jewish family. You know a lot of, of, of other Jews. But if you're gay, you're unlikely to be raised in a gay family, in a gay neighborhood. So how do you connect to other people? And the internet was a wonderful thing because it solved to a large extent this, this, this problem. So the question is not how do we stop technology, but how do we make sure the technology is used for our purposes instead of using us for, for, for its purposes? And that's you know, a, a big question throughout human history. You go back thousands of years to the agricultural revolution, it's, it's the same question. Humanity gained enormous power in the agricultural revolution, but the lives of most people actually became worse, not better. Why? Because the power that came from agriculture, from domesticating plants and animals and so forth, it benefited a very small group of kings and priests and aristocrats, whereas the life of the average person became worse. So the big question for me with, with the new technological revolution that we are now encountering, how do we avoid repeating the mistake of the agricultural revolution? How do we make sure that the new information technology is used for the benefit of all and not for the benefit of a very small minority? Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. Eva, how are you thinking about the future of humans after the pandemic. I know in Homo Deus, you, you write about the pandemic before mm. our yeah. COVID pandemic, and you, you suggest that it, it's the end of natural pandemics. but uh, and, The beginning of political pandemics. And, yes, and, and perhaps also I think you say uh, pandemics that have been created in the service of ruthless ideologies, you say. Yeah. What do you make of that prognostication now when you, mm. when you were saying that, you know, it's the end of natural pandemics and, and we may even come to miss it, you say. What do you make of that? now retrospectively yeah i definitely didn't, didn't see covid coming and I, I mean i think some people did some epidemi epidemiologists actually warned about exactly this possibility um but uh, i couldn't predict it but the, the key thing is that we are now in a new era in terms of epidemiology and pandemics for most of history pandemics were a natural disaster they were caused by, by natural forces and humans were largely helpless. You know, when the Black Death appears and kills between a quarter and half the population between Japan and Britain, nobody understands what is happening. Nobody understands how to stop it. Uh, humans are completely helpless. It's not the same with COVID. It took only two weeks to identify the virus causing the disease. It took about a year to, to mass produce several vaccines. It was an amazing scientific achievement. We are no longer helpless. The focus shifts to politics. The scientists produce the tools to understand and fight epidemics. But the decisions how to use the tools are political. And what we saw during the last two years is a scientific triumph coupled with political failure. And so in this sense, Pandemics now are, a are always political. 
They are not a natural, this humanity is powerful enough. COVID could be the last pandemic in history if politicians make the right decisions about building a global warning system and a global healthcare system. They are not doing it. So it's very likely we'll have another and even worse pandemic in five years or 10 years or 20 years. It's the same with famine. You know, for most of history, famine was a natural disaster. You have drought, you have flood, there is not enough uh, 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 crops, you can't import food from distant places because it's too, too expensive, millions of people die. This is no longer the case. With modern agricultural technology, and more importantly, with modern transportation technology, even if there is terrible drought in one part of the world, it's very cheap and easy to bring food from someplace else. So why are there still famines like we see now? Only for political reasons. You see Russia invades Ukraine and uh, 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 prevents the export of Ukrainian grain, and people go hungry in Egypt or in Sri Lanka. This is not a natural disaster. This is a political decision of, of, of some leaders. When a, a thinker, a historian like you, places something like a global pandemic in a bigger context, when you talk about the pandemic in a broader context of the plague and the Spanish flu, which many people have, have done, I wonder if something like a global pandemic is just simply a blip in a bigger history or or does something like that have the power to derail the wider story of humankind? Uh, no previous pandemic kind of completely derailed uh, the, 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 the human cause. Not even and the Black Death was far, far bigger and more horrendous than COVID. And think about it, a third of the population, it's estimated that at least in, in England, in the Kingdom of England, about a third of the population died yeah. within a few years. In, in our terms, it's, it's really unimaginable what it means. And, you know, the strange thing about when you look at England with the, with the Black Death is that it caused far less changes than you would have expected. For instance, there is no major political change. It's the same king, it's the same monarchy, it's the same feudal system, it's the same church. Part of the reason is people didn't even think that it's the responsibility of the king to do anything. So yeah, with this huge disaster, there is no major political changes. And I think also now you see that ultimately it's not about the virus. Ultimately, it's about the humans. It's about the decisions they make. And unfortunately, I mean, I would have expected, kind of hopefully, that when confronted by the virus, this would cause humanity to unite. People often say that in order to unite, you need an external enemy. And what better external enemy than a virus? Because for the virus, there is no difference between uh, 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 British people and French people, between Russians and Ukrainians, between Israelis and Palestinians. We are all prey. We are all food for the virus in in a way. So this should have driven us together, especially because it's so obvious that as long as a pandemic continues to spread in one country, no country can feel safe because it might reach us or there might be a new mutation. And even if we are vaccinated, the new mutation might evade uh, our, our defenses. But it didn't happen. During the height of the pandemic, you did not see the kind of, of, of political solidarity that, that, that we could hope for. And, you know, the, the, the pandemic is not even over. And we see this wave of violence sweeping over the world. 
uh, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine basically kind of breaking the biggest taboo of the international system since 1945. Since 1945, the kind you know the most basic rule of the international system was you can't destroy countries by force. You can't just because you're strong invade another country and wipe it off the map. And this taboo is now being broken by Putin. We see rising tensions in East Asia around Taiwan. Uh, we are now, I think, for the first time in many years in a situation where a new world war is possible. It's not inevitable, it's not deterministic, but it's, it is suddenly again on the table. And immediately after a pandemic, which should have drove us in the opposite direction. So, you know, as a historian, I often say that we should never underestimate human stupidity. It's one of the most powerful forces in history. Again, you think it's very obvious what we should be dealing with, mm -hmm. and you find that at least some people are making completely opposite decisions. And, you know, part of the problem with war, and I also touch on it in, in, in the book, in Unstoppable Us, because I, I raised the question of where did war originate? Right. And, uh, and you go back to the Stone Age, and the thing is, we don't have any evidence for war, for war between groups. We have evidence for small-scale violence, like one person hitting another person. But for war between groups, the first evidence we have is from 13,000 years ago, which is nothing in evolutionary terms. So all these arguments that war is part of human evolution or it's in our DNA, we have no evidence for that. Apparently, war is just a human invention. Some human cultures invented this thing of war. And the problem with war is that it's one-sided. You know, to make peace, you need a lot of people to agree. To make war, one person is enough. One side is enough. If they decide to have war, you can't just say, but we don't agree. Nobody's asking you. So it seems that the history of war is it's a human invention. It's not a natural phenomenon, which then spread. Because even if you have you know, a region with 50 tribes who are peaceful and one tribe which is warlike, that's enough. The war will spread. This morning, you've talked to me about Putin and Orban. Mm -hmm. You've talked to me in explicitly political terms. Yeah. And I think one of the, the criticisms sometimes levelled at Sapiens was that it was a big history book that was abstemious. It abstained on political questions. And I wonder whether your position on those political questions and your, your writing has changed since Sapiens has, has come out because of the widespread rise of populism, mm -hmm. or is your job as a historian of, of, of big history to abstain? It seems to me you're, you're much more explicitly political these days. I mean, part of it is because the political temperature around the world is reaching the boiling point. And, you know, the, the, the ability to just sit on the fence, it's becoming more and more difficult. There is no fence. There is kind of a razor sharp knife. It's very difficult to sit on it. Yes. <laughs> um, Uncomfortable, yes. And, but also I think that Ultimately, I'm not a politician. I'm not an expert on the current international relations or military strategy. I, I, I try not to comment kind of in, in a too detailed way because I just don't have the expertise. But ultimately, uh, history is about these things. I don't think that history is the study of the past. I think history is the study of change, of how things change. The present and the future are also part 
of history. And, you know, ultimately, this is what makes history relevant. I mean, who cares about all these kings and dates and battles and things that happened thousands of years ago to dead people? The people in the past are all dead. They don't care what we think about them. Um, but they are important because they still shape the world in which we live right now. Uh, we are basically living inside the dreams of dead people. You know, people hundreds of years ago, sometimes thousands of years ago, invented all kinds of stories, mythologies, dreams, and people today still believe very strongly in these stories, and this is what shapes the world. So writing the history of how these stories were invented and spread I think of it as a profoundly political uh, uh, enterprise. But what about the story that you're you're telling? That you you this is a a, a line in all of your work that, that the power of the stories that humans tell themselves about themselves. But are the new stories that are being told by thinkers like you mm-hmm. are they any better than the old ones? I hope so. I mean, a, a key thing is, not everything is a story, not everything is, there is truth, there are facts. I, uh, uh, I try to base my writing on scientific facts, and you know, a very central question to ask, when you hear the story of something, you should ask about the hero or the heroes of the story. If you want to know whether the heroes are real or fictional, you should ask, can they suffer? It's a very, very important question. Can they suffer? Now, money can't suffer. Corporations can't suffer. You know, when, I don't know, Facebook loses a lot of money, it doesn't suffer because it's just a story in people's minds. Nations don't suffer. When a nation, I don't know, loses a war, Germany loses the First World War, Germany doesn't suffer. There is no mind of Germany. There is no nervous system of Germany that Germany can feel pain. Humans suffer. Also animals suffer. So my, the, the heroes of the, of the stories that I try to tell, first of all, are real entities, biological entities. Again, they are human beings. They are animals. Even if we talk about groups, then, you know, uh, 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 nations are ultimately shaped by imaginary stories in the minds of people. Species are a different thing. Species are an objective biological reality. Chimpanzees and gorillas are different from each other, not because they believe in some chimpanzee mythology and the gorillas believe in a gorilla mythology, but there is an objective scientific difference between them. This is not the case with, say, Germans and French, or with Israelis and Palestinians. The difference between them isn't biological at all. It's in the stories that they believe and that they tell each other. So for me, it's very, very important. I see history as standing on the shoulders of biology. The most important thing to understand about history, first of all, is that humans are animals, that history is built on biology. It's not just biology, because we are very special animals. We can do things that other animals can't. But the foundation is biology. There, there is a, a part of your work that is 
you're a, a historian and a, a history that's uh, founded on the shoulders of biology, but part of your work is also thinking of the future. You're mm. a prognosticator. You're a kind of prophet. You have half a million followers on Twitter. Um, I wonder what it is that makes people turn to thinkers like you in mm. terms of thinking about the future. What, what compels us to, to turn to people like you to try to understand the future? You know, everybody wants to know what will happen next. Um, I, I definitely don't see myself as a prophet, first and foremost, because I think it's impossible to predict the future. I don't try to predict the future. I try to influence the future. You know, if you think the future is predetermined, what's the point of prophesizing it? I mean, so, so in 50s, people will say, yes, he was right. He saw what was coming. That's pointless. The whole uh, 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 reason for writing about the future is because it's not deterministic. There isn't just a single outcome. There, there are many different possibilities. I see my job as mapping the different possibilities and encouraging people to choose wisely. Again, when you talk about things like peace and war, so I don't think that peace is inevitable, and I don't think that war is inevitable. There could be a world war, but maybe not. It depends on the decisions we make. So my job as a historian is, on the one hand, to uh, map this possibility, look, there could be another world war. But then to say to people, but it's not deterministic. War is not part of our nature. It's not determined by the stars. There could be peace. Peace is a possibility. And now it's up to you. What do you want the world to be like? Do you want a world war or do you want uh, uh, world peace? And you can choose. And I don't know what you will choose. I hope you'll choose wisely, but... Uh. Unstoppable Us ends with looking to humans who build cars, aeroplanes and spaceships. What comes next in Unstoppable Us Volume 2? Um, it's, it's about the agricultural revolution. It's about, uh, again, it's, it starts with biology. How the, the, the relation between Homo sapiens and... Uh, other animal and plant species. If in, in volume one, we hear a lot about Neanderthals and other human species. In volume two, it's about the cows and the chickens and the wheat and the rice. So it starts with changing the relationship between humans and, and uh, animals and plants. Humans gaining enormous new power from the agricultural revolution, but then they have a choice what to do with that. And what you again, you see in many, many, many places, that the new power is being dominated by a very small number of people who exploit and sometimes enslave and sometimes kill uh, other people. So it's about how, at the same time, humanity can gain enormous new power and most people find themselves with less freedom and find themselves uh, uh, with worse lives. And this is a key story about the past, but it's obviously also a key story about the present and the future. We can't go back and change the agricultural revolution, but we can still do something about the cause of the present technological revolution. And the, the key message, especially for children, is that the world in which we live didn't have to be the way it is. People made it what it is, so people can change it. If you don't like something about the world right now, if you think that something about the world right now is unfair, if you think the world is going in a bad direction, you can do something about it. That's the most important message. Thank you. 
You've all know Harari's book, Unstoppable Us, Volume 1, is out on the 20th of October. I've been Shahid Abari. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.